to be no brawlers, but to but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and, and love of God, our Savior toward man, appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. But avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. A man that is a heretic after the first and second admonition reject, knowing that he that is such is subverted and sinneth, being condemned of himself. When I shall send Artemis unto thee, or Tychicus, be diligent to come unto me to Nicopolis, for I have determined there to winter. Bring Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their journey diligently, that nothing be wanting unto them. And let ours also learn to maintain good works for necessary uses, that they be not unfruitful. All that are with me salute thee. Greet them that love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. <clears throat> Again. The emphasis that we're going to be studying, the verses that we're going to be studying tonight are verses 6 through 11, primarily verses 8 through 11. But what we see here in this trajectory of the book of Titus is Paul has, has charged Titus to go to the island of Crete, establish elders, ordain elders, that churches would be planted, and that the kingdom of God would be furthered, that the gospel would be proclaimed on the island of Crete. Um, after these churches were established... Paul goes on to admonish those individuals who would be attending these churches, that mature believers would be leading young, immature believers, and that the health of the church would be strengthened, the maturity of the church would be strengthened as godly men and women lead in the church and disciple. Then we came to chapter 3. Last week we started chapter 3, and Paul charged Titus to keep the church in mind, to be obedient to powers, to magistrates, to those in authority. Uh, that they should be pursuing good works. These are good things. And he ended that, as we studied that section last week, talking about the doctrine of regeneration, the work of the Holy Spirit of God, whereby God changes a dead man, bringing him from death unto life, the work of the Spirit of God in regeneration. And then tonight, what we will see is a warning pertaining to false teachers. False teachers. Um, and as we live out our Christian faith, in a lost world, we can expect to encounter false professing believers and false teachers. Um, these things are inevitable. <clears throat> there are always tares among the wheat. And what must we do when we encounter these false teachers, especially in evangelism, as we are sharing the gospel throughout the world? Uh, what do we do if we encounter a missionary that is not upholding orthodox or biblical doctrine? What do we do whenever we encounter someone who professes to be a believer in Christ Jesus but denies that he is God? What do we do whenever we encounter these things in our evangelism as a church? Uh, I like what George Whitfield said. 
George Whitfield said during the Great, Great Awakening in the 1700s, he said, I'm going to assume that you're unconverted unless you demonstrate otherwise. I think that's a good point to make. George Whitfield preached with the mindset that I'm going to assume that you're unconverted unless you demonstrate to me otherwise. What would be a demonstration of your conversion? What would be a demonstration, an outward demonstration of someone's conversion? You can th- a guess would be anything. You can, what do you think would be a demonstration of someone's... What's a fruit of, of conversion? One would be love for God, love for His Word, love for His people, love for His lost, love for the lost. Uh, there's going to be a demonstration of, of fruitfulness in your life a demonstration of your conversion that you've been changed from death unto life. There's going to be selflessness. There's going to be a desire to see the good of others. There's going to be a desire to see the glory of God. These are all things that are manifest in the life of a believer that that's, they evident the reality of a regenerate heart, a changed heart. Um, and, and I wholeheartedly agree with what George Whitfield said during the Great Awakening. I'm going to assume that you're unconverted unless you demonstrate to me that you are converted, unless you demonstrate the fruit otherwise. Now, there's several principles that we can, we can gain and learn from, from this portion of Scripture. There's an overall warning against false teachers here given to the church that we should be on guard against false teachers. Not only did Jesus teach this, Uh, But throughout the epistles and throughout the New Testament, Peter, Paul, James warns of false teachers, the writer of Hebrew, every book in the New Testament in some way, shape, or form warns warns against false doctrine. But what Paul does in charging Timothy in verse number 8, if we look there now, he says this is a true saying, this is faithful, this is solid, rock-solid foundation. These things I will that thou affirm constantly. Titus, don't leave off teaching doctrine. Don't stop teaching about sin, about grace, about faith, about regeneration. Don't stop teaching about the cross of Christ. Paul says, teach these things constantly. Do you remember how many times the word doctrine is mentioned in the book of Titus? It's continually mentioned. Doctrine is a key point, a key emphasis of this book and the other Uh, pastoral epistles constantly teach these things then he moves to to a charge to avoid did you catch it in verse number nine but avoid foolish questions avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and then in verse 10 he says a man's a heretic after the first and second admonition by the way the word heretic here as we will see is this is the only place it's ever used in the new testament It's a very strong word, a very important charge that Titus is giving. This is a serious section of this this epistle. This is a serious section of this letter. Let's look at verses 6 through 8. The encouraging remarks and charges towards good works. Having been regenerated, what we've seen in verse 5, having been regenerated, having been born again, believers in Christ Jesus, they will manifest that regeneration by good works. The big question is, this demonstration of good works leaves us asking what exactly are good works? What exactly is a good work? I think it's a legitimate question because what we encounter in the world around us is that there are do-gooders. Have you ever heard that term? 
There are those individuals that just want to simply be humanitarian for the sake of, of doing good things. They, they want to take the cart back across the parking lot for somebody and say, look how, look how nice I am. I, I want to help somebody across the street because I want people to see that I'm a nice person. Are these good things? Yes, they're good things. You're helping individuals. But, but these are not the good works that, that the Bible is talking about. You know, we have, we have millions and millions of dollars being spent annually coming out of so-called churches to go to certain parts of the world and dig wells and big build, build buildings, but they mean nothing. They're, they're, they're empty works. They're, 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 not, they're done with the wrong motives. They're done with man-centeredness at the heart. Are wells a good thing? Yes. Are buildings a good thing for poor, impoverished country, countries? Yes. But when the Bible mentions, as Paul is mentioning here in Titus, be sure to demonstrate your regeneration by good works, he's not talking about just go around the planet painting buildings and building buildings and digging wells. He's talking about biblical good works, and the big question then is, what are they? Because, and again, I'm not, I'm not saying, like, look, we shouldn't do these nice things that we shouldn't bring medicine to impoverished countries. But what accompanies that work? What is always on the heels of bringing medicine to Czechoslovakia? What is on, always on the heels of going into Haiti and helping to rebuild? What is always there with those actions? What is it? Love. Love, yes. Awesome. The gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. Not only are these nice things taking place to help people in their temporal means and their temporal needs and meeting their needs that they have in this finite temporal existence, the gospel is there with eternal dividends. There's the motive difference. The motive difference is, is this man-centered or is this for the glory of God? See, the good works, whenever the Bible talks about good works, the good works that the Bible is talking about are accompanied with faith for the glory of God. That's what it's for. The good works of the Bible are always mentioned and always done for the glory of God. Hey guys, there's the difference between humanitarian niceness and biblical good works. Biblical good works are always coupled with regenerate faith for the glory of God. Jesus warns of this type of thing, and the reason Paul is mentioning this is because false teachers will say, no, it's okay, it's okay to go and establish a school. That's great. Build the school. Don't get all gospely, though. That's the mark of a false teacher. It's good to build a school. It's good to educate peoples. But that's not biblical good works. Biblical good works is accompanied with the truth of God's word. All these nice humanitarian issues are good, but even Jesus worried about the, warned about this in Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. And he makes his remarks rather clear. In Matthew chapter 7, verse number 15, he says, beware. Our Lord Jesus said, beware of false prophets in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. 
Let's translate that a little bit. I know you've heard this verse many times, but what he's saying there is that they're going to look like you. They're going to talk like you. They're even going to act like you. They're going to be in the same pasture as you, eating the same grass as you, but inwardly they are vicious, ravenous wolves. They want to eat you. They want to tear you apart. They have the wrong motives. Inwardly, they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. That's what we're talking about. What fruits are produced in these lives? These false teachers, you're going to know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. Just to expound on that a little bit. What's Jesus saying there is that a regenerate heart will bring forth good fruit. No matter what. Because it's the Spirit of God bringing forth that fruit, not the method or motives of the individual. A bad tree, which is corrupt, natural, a corrupt heart, will bring forth bad fruit, false fruit. Every tree that bring forth, bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire, verse 19. Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. You're going to know them. You're going to be able to. What's this going to require? We live in an age where, have you ever heard this? I know you've probably heard this. Maybe you've even said this yourself. This is a big remark of, that we hear all the time in Hagerstown. Who are you to judge? Don't judge me. What's, what's wrong with that? We make judgment calls every day, every moment. Like, like we are constantly judging now, whenever we say judge, we're not, we're, not relent, we're not rendering a final verdict, you know, hammer down, making judgment calls that have eternal dividends. That's not what we're saying, but we are discerning. If you have someone that claims to be a Christian and goes home and beats his wife, his fruits are demonstrating that his heart is corrupt. He, and, and we can't approach that man and say, hey, look, I don't want to judge, but um, you're going to kill your spouse. No, we don't do that. We say, look, man, you're living in sin and your profession is, is false. You, what are you going to do about this? Um, that, that, that's, that's a judgment call. That's discernment. That's, that's action. It would be unloving to abandon that hypothetical situation. It would be unloving to step back and say, oh, I don't really want to judge anybody. I don't want to, you know, cross into the judgment zone. No, no, Jesus said you will know them by their fruits. You're going to know them. You're going to be able to discern these, these situations. Verse 21 gets even more amplified in Matthew 7. He says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. There's going to be on that final day, dear ones. Many will say, verse 22, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name have cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works and then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. There's going to be individuals that profess to know Jesus. They profess to be believers. And on that final day, Jesus is going to say, get away from me, I never knew you. Depart from me. This is a serious, serious issue that not only Paul is addressing in Titus, but that Jesus himself addressed openly in the Sermon on the Mount. Also, you don't have to turn here, I'll read it to you. Matthew 23, 5. But all their works they do for to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments. 
And they love the uppermost rooms of the feast, these false teachers. They want to be seen of men. They want to look religious. They want to sound religious. They talk the talk. There is no walk. There is no fruit. And the chief seats of the synagogues they desire and greetings in the marketplaces and to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But be ye not called Rabbi, for one is your master, capital M, even Christ, and all ye are brethren. That's another mark of a false teacher. What are they, what are they, what's their fruit like? Their fruit is selfish. They have personal motives. They desire to be seen of men. They want a crowd. They want a following. They want people to love them, not Christ. That's a clear mark of a false teacher. But we haven't really, we haven't really put our finger on the button of, as Paul is saying, constantly remind them to be doing good works. Constantly remind them that they should be pursuing these things because one, in verse number eight of Titus chapter three, it's profitable. It's good and it's profitable unto men. What are these things? What are good works that we can determine from Scripture? One, as I've mentioned, is love. A false teacher will have a very difficult time loving anyone. It may seem superficial, but that love that is demonstrated to the, by these false teachers towards anyone is only to get what they want. Once they can no longer get what they want from that individual, they will eliminate that love and turn it to another person to get what they want from the next person. This love is temporal. This love is not lasting. This love is superficial and selfish. It's not love. John 13, 35 says, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. John 14, 23, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. See, when there's love... There's not only love for God's people, there's not only love for the lost, there's love for Christ and there's love for his word. A false teacher cannot love the word of God. That's a clear mark of a false teacher. They, they will seem to have a desire to know the word. Did you know that even the devil knows the Bible? He quotes it. He quotes it and manipulates. What's he do whenever he tempted Jesus in the wilderness? He manipulates the word and he twists it to make his to make it fit his motives. That's what a false teacher does. A false may there are many false teachers that know much about the Bible, but they do not love God's word. They only use it for selfish gain. What's another mark? What's another good work? A biblical good work? It'd be forgiveness. I would say forgiveness is something that that a false teacher cannot stomach. Because a false teacher loves grudges. A false teacher loves divisions. A false teacher cannot forgive because they have not experienced forgiveness. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. How in the world could you not forgive anyone on this planet having seen what Jesus has done for you? I just can't. I can't get over it. You know, I, people hold on to these things for years and years and years and it corrupts and it burns them and it singes their heart and they will not forgive and they want to hold on to that for years and years and years. And then having seen Jesus Christ, we say, yes, I know I've experienced forgiveness in Jesus, but I can't forgive. Are, are you? <laughs> Essentially what you've just said is, I am better than God. I am more knowledgeable than God. A false teacher will not forgive. Now I'm not saying that it's easy. I'm not saying that it's easy. 
It, it, it's very, very often it's difficult. But nonetheless, a believer will forgive. When they see what Christ has done for them and the shedding of his blood and the substitutionary action on the cross that Jesus has done on their behalf, it's, it's almost impossible to, forget, to, uh, to be unforgiving. I like what Paul says in Philippians 2. A, a good work that is mentioned in the Bible is to simply have the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ was humble. He, in verse 2, verse 5 says, Let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Isn't that amazing? The Son of God humbled himself to such a degree, taking on human flesh, it was as if he made himself of no reputation. Do you know nowhere in the scriptures do we find any remarks about what Jesus looked like? Because it doesn't matter. It, 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 frankly, it does not matter. We see that he looked pretty regular. We see that in the book of Hebrews in the Old Testament, we also see that his, after he was beaten and scourged and as he was placed on the cross, he was marred beyond recognition. He was marred more than any man. That's the only descriptive image that we have of what Jesus looked like was whenever he was torn to shreds. And he did it for others. He was of no reputation. He took on the likeness of men and being found in fashion of a man, he humbled himself. It is very much impossible for a false teacher to be humble. A mark of a true believer, a regenerate Christian, someone who is demonstrating good works will have this mind of Christ that they have of no reputation. They are selfless. They are humble. They do not desire their own motives and mission. Jesus was even became, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Another good work would be the glory of God. Everything we do is for the glory of God. Whether you, therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, you do all to the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10.31. Look at Romans chapter 12 with me now. <clears throat> Keep something in Titus there as we explore what these good works are that Paul is saying constantly affirm to them, constantly teach them. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I think it's funny how Paul knows that, that we are so sheepish. We need this constant reminder. We need this constant demonstration before our eyes for us to get these truths. He writes in verse 1 of chapter 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable worship. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove, there it is, that, that is what good works are doing in our lives. They're proving that we are believers, proving what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We are demonstrating the truth has changed us. Why? Because we've been renewed in our mind. What's that, what's that reference to the renewing of our minds? When the work of God in regeneration takes place in the life of a believer, our mind changes. We, whereas we loved sin before, now we hate sin. Whereas we were enemies of God, now we are heirs with Christ. Whereas we wanted nothing to do with God before, now we can't get enough of his word. There's a massive change that takes place whenever God changes us, brings us from death unto life. Jump to the book. Yes, ma'am. Why is it that we don't 
What, what do you mean by backslide? Like, like um, sin? No. Like as if, you know, somebody does you wrong and you can't forgive them and uh, you hold grudges and what have you. It's more like a backslide where... Yeah, I, I'm hesitant to use, I know exactly what you mean, I'm hesitant to use the term backslide because the only reason is, like in the Old Testament, there's a reference to it, Israel is like a backsliding heifer. Do you ever read that verse? That there's, if you picture a, 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 a cow <laughs> who is trying to climb a muddy hill, and that muddy hill is just what's what's every one of you seen a cow you know what a cow does when it's trying to climb a muddy hill it's just clawing it's not going anywhere and it's just sliding down that wet soaked rain soaked muddy hill it's it's doing nothing how's it going to get up there the only way it's going to get to the top of that slick nasty hill is if something aids it it's not going to make it up there on its own and and the reason that that illustration is used is a demonstration of it's God who, who is constantly at work in our sanctification, bringing us to where we need to be in Christ Jesus. It's, it's never a, do we mess up? Yeah, we mess up. We mess up all the time. We, we sin and sometimes very grievously. But we never fall off the hill. We, we never fall back to the bottom. In fact, he's, he's there and he's, he's actually leading us and encouraging us and teaching us as the doctrine of sanctification teaches that what he's begun in you, he will finish it. He will complete it. When we say that we quote unquote backslide, I consider that to be, if that individual is a true believer, that's, that's another indication. Sometimes people will, will believe and profess salvation having never been truly changed. They've never experienced that conversion. But nonetheless, that's certain circumstances where people are um, more or less on the, their, their, God is drawing them and they're new believers. Like Paul, Paul was saying in Romans chapter seven, that, that I would do, I, I don't do. And that, that I don't want to do, that's what I do. I, he's wrestling with this all the time. He's, he's wrestling with this. Implement- I know that there's times like, you know, whenever something goes wrong or I say the wrong thing or what have you, and I'm thinking, how would I ever say that? Like, you know, I'm not going to do something like that. And it's like, that's just not the way I really think, and, but yet that's what happens, you know? Well, well, first of all, that's actually like a Romans 7 situation where it's actually a demonstration of a mature believer because you instantly have that conviction. If you, if you didn't have that conviction of, oh, man, I just I shouldn't have said that. You know, I, I shouldn't have been acting that way. That, in, that conviction is a mark of the Spirit's change in your life you're, as you're spending time in his word you know that you should be acting for the glory of God um, but we're not gonna we're gonna be battling that for the rest of our lives until we die we're gonna be we're gonna be like that um, you know it, it's that terminology of backsliddenness that that I just I can't get it to stick in my mouth I I just don't find that it's in conjunction with sanctification as God is growing us we know that we're going to break, we're going to mess up, we're going to do silly things, but he's constantly there and he's constantly leading us. Um, I, I wouldn't say that we fall from grace or any of that kind of thing or, you know, we have to start back at ground zero. And, um, what if somebody has a drinking problem and they're, oh. they're 
they get saved, but then they kind of get back into their old habits. Yeah. Did you question their salvation then? Oh, um, I, I, no, I mean, I don't know. For my, in my particular circumstance, I'll tell you, this is funny because you guys both just kind of hit the two nails on the same board here. Whenever I, you know, I believed that I was a Christian for the first 26 years of my life. I'm, I'm like, whenever my, bro, whenever my friend asked me, we got into his little Toyota pickup truck and he had a third day CD. And, and I said, oh, man, you listen to Third Day? And he said, yeah, you know who they are? I said, yeah, you know. And he said, are, are you a Christian? Have you been born again? I said, yeah. I, that was my answer. I knew that I was not converted. But I had gone to church my whole life. I had professed to be a Christian. I, you know, I, did, I, went, I went to church. I, you know, but I lived like the devil. And I thought that my infant baptism was my conversion. That's how like totally backward I was. I, I never had any doctrine, never any teaching. I'd never really, the gospel never really sunk into my heart. And then, you know, two weeks later, that guy and I were in the bar. And, you know, as far as I was concerned, I was a Christian. But I was living, I was living life of open sin and debauchery. And it came to a point where God had so arrested me in my tracks that I knew that my profession was false. I knew that what I thought a Christian was was absolutely nothing of, of the reality of what a true Christian was. And I sat across the desk of my pastor, who he wasn't my pastor. Carla made me go see him. And... Uh, that was a whole funny story there. You know, she's like, why don't you go see Pastor Dave? I said, I am not going to see a pastor. I'm not, I'm not doing it. And eventually the Lord, <laughs> the Lord, the Lord got me there. And, and there I am sitting across the desk from this guy. And he thought I was coming to ask him if he would marry us. And, and I came like, no, hey, I'm a drunk. I have a drinking problem and I want to die. And I sat across the desk from him, and he looked at me. And after I said, I just don't want to go anymore. I'm done. He said, that's a typical remark of a drunkard. That's word for word, verbatim, what he said. He said, drunkard. And whenever he, called, he said, that's typical of a drunkard. That word, that word so struck me. I, I was just like, a, a drunkard? Uh, that's exactly what I am. I'm a, I'm a drunk. And I was just so convicted at that moment. I was unconverted. I was completely unconverted. But I thought for years, I thought I was a Christian. And I said to him, am I backslidden? Or like, what is this? I said backslide. And when you said that word, I was like, I was like, oh my goodness, I just got transported back to Dave's office, <laughs> you know? And, and they were sitting there, and I said, am I backslidden or, or whatever? And he flat out looked at me, and he said, no, you're unconverted. And I was. I was unconverted as it gets. It would be another, uh, it would be another three months before God brought life into my existence. And I'll never forget, I was... I was, 
I went up upstairs in my family's house, my parents' house, and there was my my situation was so pathetic. There was a mattress on the floor in the loft, and for some reason there was a Bible on it, and the Bible was open. Well, not for some reason. <laughs> the Bible was open to Ephesians two. And there I am, I'm weeping, you know, I'm like, Lord, I can't live like this anymore. He was, he was so convicting me and crushing me. It it was the birth pains. I was being born again. And I had, the Bible was open on that mattress on the floor to Ephesians chapter two. And I got to verses eight and nine. And it said, for by grace, are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves? That, that not of yourselves was the moment of my conversion. That was when I was born again. Right there as I read those words. That not of yourselves. You, ask, you wonder why I constantly quote that verse around here? It's because that's the verse that made me a Christian. Like that's when I came to life. And so as far as if somebody going back into their sin... At that moment, I never drank again. I never drank again. Never, never drank again. I'm not saying that believers don't wrestle with that. But, but to fall off the wagon, I do have a problem with that. I, I do have an issue with that. Because, because that's like saying that God isn't powerful enough to keep you from, from that sin. Um, now I'm not saying that guys don't have these moments where they, they, they fall and they break and they jump back into this addiction, but I mean, I have a really tough time having experienced the power of God to think that that true conversion doesn't bring lasting freedom, but that lasting freedom may only come when they close their eyes in death. Um, it's the same thing with drugs. You know, the the hook in the flesh is such a vicious and vile thing. This is why I just don't have any tolerance whatsoever for, for alcohol. Did you guys hear about the story um, of the family that was helped by the, by the father who was drinking? Yeah, me neither. <laughs> so, I mean, it's a, it's a serious thing. Um, so I... I just really have no tolerance for it whatsoever. But, but, but there's also an element there where there must be grace and there must be patience for God to move and work in the lives of these individuals. Once you made that confession there, you count the knowing, did you keep your old friends, your old drinking buddies that run around with them all the time? I couldn't. You can't. No. Not to be a not to. Nope. Give it up completely and walk away from drinking. You cannot keep your old friends. No, I mean, I thought I was going to go out. The Lord set my heart on such a fire at, at that moment. I was like the whole world light lit up. It was like all the blinders came, all the lights came on, everything clicked. My, I could, it was just the Lord set me on fire and I'm like, all my friends are going to get converted. That's what I thought. I'm going to go and preach the gospel to all my friends. They're all going to come to Christ. And we're going to see the great awakening number three. The second I started talking about Jesus, they said, you hypocrite. We know you. We know you. 
don't tell me about this change stuff. I don't need that Jesus. And I never saw him again. And they're gone. And they're gone to this day. And there'll be the occasional, hey, Merry Christmas, here's a Christmas card. But other than that, they're nowhere to be found, you know. Um, but, but God did such a work of a, a change in my heart. That's regeneration. That's going from death to life. Now, now for those of you that have maybe been con- converted later in life, you, you can recall what I'm talking about. You know what I'm saying. Now, someone that's younger, my wife was saved when she was six years old, and she remembers her conversion. She remembers being converted. She remembers that weightiness of sin followed by peace in knowing Christ. There, that's a conversion. And she remembers that even at six years old. Carl. I've kind of told you before, my friend at work, Louis Zimmerman, he passed away since then. Some of you may know him. And he said, uh, before he converted, he was at, after and Sunday afternoons, he'd have a keg of beer. And uh, he said, there's a crowd there to have his friends and relatives all came and had barely had room to talk. And the Lord said to him, he said, uh, one of the things he convicted him about was, was uh, that, that parties that he was having about drinking. So he just took, took the keg out and he said, about three weeks later, he looked around his wife and said, where's everybody at? <laughs> there's nobody there. Makes you think, who really was their friend? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it wasn't they, him. You know, it made me think, what were they there for? Yeah. Free booze. Yeah. Free booze. You know, I, that's, this, is, this is why my heart goes out to... to I mean, I, I just feel such a, a burden for these individuals who wrestle with this stuff. Um, it can be very painful. It tears families apart. And, um, and you'll never find rest. And so, I don't want you to think, I'm not, what, there's another aspect of this. Jesus talked about painting the sepulcher or, or whitewashed tombs or polishing the outside of the cup. Um, and he referenced those that have these demons that, you know, the demon leaves and whenever... He returns, he finds everything swept and garnished and everything's nice and clean and he brings back seven of his friends, you know, and they all, and things are worse than before. Um, th- this is not just a, hey, deacon quit drinking. He found Jesus. He polished up the outside of the cup. Christ did such a work in me that he changed the whole vessel. And it's, it, it, the, the, the no more drinking is just a, a, a byproduct of that. What, what has ultimately taken place is he gave me a heart that loves him. And there's the joy. Um, there's, there's the peace. There's the rest. You don't have to look for peace and rest in anything else. You find it in Christ. It's, that's the new man, the new existence. And you're, you're fueled by this book, this word, this truth. It, it's literally the bread of life. It's what sustains you. Um, let's, let's look at James. We got any more comments about that? Hopefully I sufficed in giving some sort of an answer there to both you guys. And, um, look at James chapter one. A lot of guys like to avoid this verse, um, these verses, James chapter one, talking about faith and good works and regeneration and, and how salvation is demonstrated through good works. James chapter one, verse number 20. For the wrath of man worketh not 
the righteousness of God. Um, I don't think that's the verse I want, is it? Wherefore lay apart filthiness, super... No, that's not it. Go to James chapter 2, verse number 22. We'll look at that one instead. Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect, and the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then how then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only? Martin Luther, because of that verse, wanted to remove James from the canon of Scripture. Martin Luther so wrestled with this book because of that one verse, he believed that James, the half-brother of Jesus, denied salvation by grace through faith. But what James is saying there is that your true conversion, your faith that has been given to you, will demonstrate itself through good works. That's how, these, that's how this conversion is manifest. That's how this conversion is demonstrated to the world. You will have good works. Why? Because you believe God, as Abraham believed God. It's going to show itself. Your faithfulness is going to show itself through good works. Now I'm going back to Titus, okay? I know we're kind of jumping all around a little bit here tonight, but Titus is being warned about these false teachers. These false teachers will not demonstrate good works. In fact, there will be a weightiness of wickedness surrounding their actions and their fruit. This next verse is rather interesting. He says in verse number 9, but avoid foolish questions and genealogies and controversies. He's not saying don't ask questions. Questions are a good thing. We should always ask questions of the text. What he's saying is these false teachers are going to bring in foolish questions, like, hey, have you ever read the Gospel of Thomas? Or what do you think about the Apocrypha? That's a, that's a foolish question. Those are the types of controversies that Paul is referencing here. And he's also talking about things that the Judaizers would have been pushing in this time frame. The Judaizers wanted to couple the law with grace. They wanted to say, yes, you're saved by grace through faith, but you've got to be circumcised. The Judaizers wanted the law to be incorporated into salvation. And Paul says there is no such thing as that. It is salvation by grace through faith alone in Christ alone or no salvation at all. People ask questions for three reasons. Did you know this? People ask questions for three reasons. One, they honestly want to know the answer. Two, they want to know what you know. And three, they want you to know what they know. That's the three reasons that people ask questions. One, they honestly want to know the answer. Two, they just want to know what you know. And three, they want you to know what they know. So there's the three motives behind questioning. And what Paul is saying here is avoid such things. Now, it's good when somebody asks a legitimate question and they desire to know the answer. And you can always discern this. You know whenever somebody asks you a legitimate question where they just simply want to know the fact, they want to know the answer. And you also know whenever somebody asks you a question and they go, hmm, what do you think about that? What do you think about the Gospel of Thomas? And, and you're thinking, now you're really not asking me that to know the factual answer. You're asking me that because, one, you want to tell me what you think about the Gospel of Thomas, or you want me to tell you what I think about the Gospel of Thomas. There's, there's an innuendo, there's a hidden motive behind these questionings. Paul says avoid them. Avoid those foolish questions and genealogies, which the Jewish Judaizers would have loved to do. They would have loved to trace their lineage. My lineage goes back to such and such a tribe. Interesting they can't do that today. 
no one can trace their lineage, 100% factual because the records were destroyed in 70 AD, which if they have a Messiah who comes on the scene at this point, they will not be able to prove that he is from the tribe of Judah. It would be a guess. And interestingly enough, the Bible declares that they will follow him. They will follow the false Christ who claims to sit in the throne of God. Genealogies are just controversies, declaring the truth. Not This is, by the way, John MacArthur says, not arguing error. This is how we evangelize. The way to evangelize is the biblical non-argumenting of error. We don't debate about error. When a Jehovah's Witness comes to your house, you don't get into a debate about the, the Joseph Smith writings or the Bible, which is the word of God. You don't, you don't say which is which. Let's get into a debate about this. You go straight for the gospel. Salvation by grace through faith, not of works. That's how you share the truth. You don't get into these debates about these goofy controversies that just lead to nowhere. Now let's look at verse number 10. Paul uses a very serious word. A man that is a heretic. This is the only place in the entire New Testament where this word is used. It literally means schismatic. Is that the same as divisive? It means literally divisive. It means divisive. A man is divisive. If a man be divisive. A, A man that is a heretic. The reason that I like the word heretic is because it, it assumes error. There is, a, there is a truthful divisiveness that we can have, right? We need to divide and separate from those who teach false doctrine. But when this heretic is mentioned, it's talking about false teaching, false doctrine. Someone that's divisive in a very false negative way. Someone who creates or fosters fractions. What a... What a what a sickening feeling that I get just by thinking about this. This person likes to divide. This person likes to foster fractions. These heretics are false believers and even false teachers. They are wolves in sheep's clothing, as Jesus says. They desire only to win people to their side. They do not seek reconciliation. They love division. They love drama. Their voices are often vicious and destructive. They are good communicators with whimsical language. They easily deceive the unsuspecting. With emotionalism and lies, they snatch away the emotional. This is why we need to be discerning. I read this in the MacArthur Study Bible. He says this, quote, Anyone in the church who is unsubmissive, self-willed, and divisive should be expelled. It wasn't my words. That's, that was a note in the MacArthur Study Bible. Anyone that is unsubmissive, self-willed, and divisive should be expelled. Why? Because that's not a believer. I, I have yet to meet a truly converted individual who is unsubmissive, self-willed, and naturally divisive. I, I have yet to meet someone who loves Christ who acts that way. Even a new believer you remember the first moments of your salvation. When I talk about the first couple years of your salvation, there's just such, there's such a weight that has been lifted off of your shoulders. You're simply quiet. I mean, you're just, you're just there to learn. You're, you're there to, to be finding out more of Jesus Christ. There's no divisiveness there. There's no wickedness or fractions being cultivated. It's like a newborn babe just wanting the milk of God's word. 
These two warnings coincide with the roadmap of the church discipline taught in Matthew 18. This is exactly what Paul is mentioning here because he says after the first and second admonition, the rest of verse 10 says, reject him. Reject him. Get him out. Don't deal with it. Knowing. Why? We've just made a judgment call. Paul is saying, look, you've now discerned. Verse 11 goes on to say, knowing that he that is such is subverted and sinneth being condemned of himself. He's, he's actually condemning himself because he's trying to win people to his side. He's desirous of these fractions. He wants nothing more than to be divisive. These are false teachers. Paul says, reject. Reject. Don't deal with them. It's like a little bit of leaven. Leaven's the whole lump. A true believer is humble, forgiving, gracious, selfless, loving, patient, meek. Because Christ is active in their lives as a result of the Spirit's presence in their existence. Galatians chapter 5 verse 22 says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. Paul says, don't be envious. Don't be provoking one another. Those are not marks of, of a true believer. Don't be desirous of vain glory, empty nothingness, your name in the neon sign. It's all temporary. Can't take it with you. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness. What a wonderful truth that is. It's impossible for a believer to be changed by the Spirit of God and not exemplify those things. Do we make mistakes? Yes. And we come to the throne of grace to help in time of need. Why? Because our Savior and, our, and the Spirit of God is our mediator. Jesus is the mediator between God and man. We have an advocate, one who stands in our place. When the devil accuses the brethren, Jesus says it's under the blood. It's under the blood. He's been washed. And he's not perfect. <laughs> Someday we will be. Someday we'll be changed. We will have new bodies. We will be glorified. This is the wonderful hope we have in Jesus Christ. Any questions or thoughts along those things tonight?